All right, here we all are. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Here's our theme music. Welcome back, everybody. I am Matt Bird. I am the author of Secrets of Story, innovative tools for perfecting your fiction and captivating readers. We have our usual co-host, James Kennedy. James Kennedy, say hi to everybody. Hi, I'm James Kennedy, the author of The Order of Oddfish and uh, run the 92nd Newberry Festival and a bunch of other things. And lots of other things. And last time we had our next guest on, we forgot to actually introduce her. So you just sort of met her in media res. But this time we're going to actually introduce her. I want to welcome back to the show, Parker Peavy House. Hi, I'm Parker Peavy House. I'm the author of Strange Exit and The Echo Room and Where Futures End. Very good. And since the last time we had you on, I had not actually read any of your books last time you had you on. But then James was so crazy about Where Futures End after that podcast, I went ahead and listened to it. And then I went ahead and listened to Strange Exit because you want to talk about it in this podcast. And I got to say, everything James said about you last time was true. You're a great writer. Thank you. That's really nice. We talked about last time how I met Parker because she sent me a blurb from nowhere back when she first got signed. And then I used that blurb to help sell my book. So Parker is a blurb of mine. James is a blurb of mine. Now James and I are both enthusiastic fans of Parker. And so we've just got a big, uh, we just got a big love fest going on. So we figured, why not keep it going? Let's keep the love fest going. And Parker had another idea for a topic, and it sounded like a good topic to us. So we decided to have her back on. Yeah, and yeah. I also oh. read James' book since last time, and oh, you did. Oddfish, and I loved it. it I wrote down this one line so I could just like laugh at it later because it was it's so funny. We all like laughing at James. <laughs> wait, wait, what, what, what's the line? It was the part where the guy is telling the main character the, na- the the true nature of the world, and he has this like ridiculous explanation, and she's like, "That's the true nature of reality," and he's like, "No, I'm not supposed to come up with like the right answer. I just yeah. come up with ridiculous ways <laughs> that I could be wrong." And I was like, "Well, that's amazing. That's just what a writer does, you know." Thank you. Yeah. Uh, somebody uh, that that line as as an oddfish, it is not my job to be right; it's my job to be wrong in new and interesting ways. Uh, so, uh, a bookseller in San Francisco has that tattooed on her back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, that's amazing. That's the ultimate compliment to a writer, isn't it? I don't think anybody has head, heart, and gut tattooed. Well, people, <laughs> people have tattoos on their head, heart, and gut, but I don't think anybody has, <laughs> has any of my advice tattooed on their body. That that would be great though. Uh, like, <laughs> somebody who just like has advice from like save the cat tattooed on their body <laughs> and, and like Robert McKee bullshit. That, that, that would be just wonderful. But James, they, they I have... feel like it's that's going to be your job as a co-host is to commit to getting Matt's advice tattooed on you somewhere. That's a big error. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, how, how have you been bearing up? Like, what have you been doing? My friends and I just we decided that everyone has a uh, pandemic personality, and mine is Kristen Wiig on an airplane and bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what Kristen Wiig does on the airplane is what I'm doing: <laughs> dancing around, complaining about rich people, trying to drink a little, yeah. seeing weird things on airplane wings. You know what else I've been doing during the pandemic is I wrote a workshop on how to write plot twists uh-huh. and I led the workshop and we had so much fun. It was the most fun workshop just talking about plot twists. So I'm going to do it again in February if people want to try it out. It's on my website. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Parker, so we often bring up ideas of tricks or tips or ways of pr- approaching storytelling uh, that would help writers. And it seems you, as somebody who has published three great books, you also would have that kind of advice, and you have brought some of that advice to hear us to here today, correct? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I, I was kind of like in volleyball. I'm just kind of setting it up, and I'm wanting you to spike it. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, I was reading all the Believe Karen Vest on Matt's blog, and some of it I just I was like, well, a lot of the examples that you have under these different categories. And especially when you get to James five E's, I was just asking myself, isn't it 10, isn't, 10 now? Oh, 10. Oh gosh. I'm oh. behind. <laughs> um, I was thinking a lot of these examples seem like examples of agency. And so then I just thought, well, maybe what you really need is not believe care invest as much as like believe care invest in the form of agency. And yeah, I was but- looking back. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I was thinking a lot of it looks like, hey, your character should have agency. And I went back and I looked at some old posts and I was looking in the book as well about 
Matt's advice on how a character can have a philosophy at the beginning of the story, um, some kind of rules for their life or like way of looking at life that's usually wrong. Mm-hmm. And somewhere throughout the story that gets challenged where they have to go against that philosophy or make a new philosophy. And it seemed like a lot of the ways that characters express their day-to-day rules or philosophy in life is through some kind of active agency early in the story. Mm-hmm. And the way they end up reforming it later is by breaking it by another active agency. And so I just thought, well, it seems like agency feels really important. But so I think you're talking about two different things when you're talking about agency. You're talking mm-hmm. about willfulness. You're talking about breaking the rules or being stubborn or sometimes sticking. Sometimes characters get in trouble by sticking to the rules too much. Sometimes characters get in trouble by breaking the rules that have actually been doing well by them and then they break them. But but I when you first said you were on talking about agency, I thought like, oh, that's something we can disagree on because which is which is the heart of this podcast. Because let's talk about agency in another way. When sometimes I give people notes on their books and I say, you have given this character too much agency. You, Someone has told you that your character is supposed to have agency. So you've included a scene that seems sort of awkwardly inserted where the character has to choose to make this happen in a way that is not actually necessary in books and sometimes hurts books. It's often can work well to have the story just happen to the hero. And so like I am reading my daughter right now, The Hobbit. I just read her another 45 minutes of The Hobbit uh, with the bear guy. And, you know, The Hobbit is in a, is a book where the hero in no way makes the story happen. The hero does not decide, I want to go on an adventure. The hero does not decide, let's go steal some gold. The hero does not say, let me invite some dwarves over to my house. Everything just sort of happens to him. And he does have to decide if he's going to go along with it. They put the question to him and he has to commit. So there is a moment of commitment, but there is not, there. he has very, very little agency. And I think that some writing advice gurus leave people with the intent, with the idea that your that the whole book has to be your hero's doing, that your hero has to put the story in motion. Now, I re- I'm not sure that's exactly what you're talking about when you talk about agency, but maybe we should take a moment to talk about that. And how do you guys feel about that? I well, like you the, know what? Oh, go, go ahead, Parker. The Hobbit is a good book, and I really like it. But the real enduring work by Tolkien is. The Lord of the Rings, in which Frodo really does have a lot of agency where he decides to take the ring, even though he doesn't have to. And it really goes against his personal philosophy about just like living in the Shire and relaxing and enjoying life. Yeah, well, and that happens to Bilbo, too. But, but you know, but Bilbo, you know, but this whole thing just sort of lands in his lap. And I'd say that's true of Frodo as well. This whole thing sort of lands in his lap. Well, I mean, this and, is a- you know, and he says, you know, why did this happen? You know, even at the end when this is all happening, he's like, why did this happen to happen to me? <laughs> he never, you know, like, why did I have to live in interesting times? I mean, you don't have to stick with like uh, The Hobbit either. I mean, I think we did a whole episode about this, episode nine, in which like Harry Potter, Bella Swan, Meg Murray, Charlie of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Alice, Chi Hero of Spirited Away, Arthur Dent, James of James and Giant Peach. These are all very passive characters that are all parts of, you know, uh, with kind of little agency, at least, you know, or, or just slightly increasing agency little by little. But it's, uh, it, it's true that like, you don't have to have, I, I don't think, I, I think agency is overrated. Well, I I think it is too, and I I see people harming their books by trying to put too much of it in, but but it's it's even worse when the character doesn't commit when literally the whole thing just happens to him without having a moment. Like they leave it, they say to Bilbo, "Here's the deal. Are you going to take it?" And they say to Frodo, "Here's the deal. Are you going to take it?" And so the hero has to have enough agency to say yes or no, but it, the whole thing doesn't have to be their idea. So what do you think, uh, Parker? Like, uh, or are we kind of misinterpreting you? No, I just, I have two thoughts on that. One is, I remember, Matt, when you wrote a meddler post about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, right? And how yes. you would yes. uh, improve the plot because you said that Harry had no agency in that story and that he should take action and, sort of, and cause some of these things. Like he should put his name in the Goblet himself so that he'd have to deal with the consequences of having gone against Ron and and sneaking around and doing all that kind of thing and it would have been a more interesting story and I felt like that was really true 
even though I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, that Harry Potter works fine, but could be more interesting if Harry had a little more agency. You know, because he thinks about it. He thinks about putting his name in and he thinks like, oh, that'd be really cool. Maybe I should try to put my name in. And then, you know, and then he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And then he has to deal with all these consequences of having his name in there. And I thought, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm less, you know, I might not have written that post today, but yeah, I mean, I think there is a case to be made, certainly in the fourth and sixth book, that Harry is too passive. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. My other in the sixth thought, book, yeah, go ahead, James. So, I, I mean, in the sixth book, they just kind of look at the Ponceve the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, is, there, is there any like exposition we need to get out of the way before the seventh book? Let's watch TV. For and an then zombies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah. What were you going to say, Parker? Sorry. What was the other, yeah, what was the other thing well, you were going to say, Parker? I like James's French pronunciation of pensive. <laughs> like, pensive. <laughs> well, I thought, isn't that how they pronounce it in the movies? <laughs> Is it? I don't I don't remember that at all. I don't know. Maybe you're Oh, right. I was hoping you'd be like, oh, I didn't see the movies. I don't have a TV. <laughs> uh, I kind of more of a book person. I was expecting you guys were too, but no, that's fine. I mean, you guys like to watch TV, I suppose. Was that on Masterpiece Theater? I might have seen it if it were on Masterpiece Theater, but that's that's the only thing I watch. Um, no, I, I don't remember how they pronounced it in the movies. I, I should because we just rewatched the fourth movie with my – I'm currently – I'm having a good time reading to my kids right now because I'm reading The Hobbit to my daughter and I'm reading Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix to my son. And I'm enjoying both – we alternate who reads to who each night and uh, I'm enjoying myself. But anyway, Parker, you said that you had two thoughts on yeah. that and you gave us just one of the thoughts, I believe. My second thought was – Sometimes people think a character doesn't have agency, but I've what I've been thinking about lately is that there's a type of agency that's a little more subtle, which I like to call like a resistance agency. Mm. So a good example of this is in, have you guys seen Knives Out? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, Marta is pretty much the main character, even though we're watching the detective investigate. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. She, I just watched it last night again. She doesn't really have a lot of agency in, in the way of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to cause this, or I'm going to I'm gonna choose to help the detective. She's really pulled into all of it and doesn't really make a lot of decisions herself. But she has this type of agency, which is resistance. Every time the family tries to get her to renounce her inheritance or, or someone tries to make her go against what she wants to do, she's really good at resisting and remaining virtuous. It's kind of like this Cinderella idea, I feel like, where the main character's job is to just resist bad influence and stay virtuous. That's and a I really good like point. Yeah, it's the same in uh, Jane Austen novels. I just reread Mansfield yeah. Park. And most Jane Austen novels, the heroines don't really have the ability to go out and cause things to happen because no. of their societal restrictions. So instead, a lot of it is Mr. Collins proposing and, and Lizzie having enough strength to say, no, I refuse to marry you because that would be a terrible choice for me. And um, in Mansfield Park, Franny refuses to marry uh, Henry, who everyone can see is just headed for trouble. So it's like their their resistance is what ends up driving the plot because by refusing Mr. Collins, by refusing um, Henry, those heroines end up causing terrible things to happen with the characters who have less scruples than they do. So it's it doesn't look like agency, but it really is. Yeah, and that's yeah. probably a good way to make a compelling character that's not the same as every other character nowadays, which maybe one of the reasons why Knives Out that you know was so popular. And my both my girls, they watch it three times. They love it. Oh, and, really? And it's I think it's because this is a not a tired trope. And I think you don't totally put your finger on it, Parker. Yeah, Marta is such a lovable character. And so you do still have a lot of that believe care, like especially the care, because you see that she's mistreated by everyone just in very subtle ways. And mm-hmm. then when you see that she's resisting it all, you really have a lot of respect for her. So how does that uh, uh, come uh, like butt up against your, well, all you need is agency kind of idea? Because I feel like she does have agency. It's just not the type of agency we're used to. Gotcha. So her agency is more of the resistance type. So it kind of comes with a lot of, you still have to care about her. You know, in that sense, it's not like, oh, as long as she resists, she can be a total jerk. Mm-hmm. But And I I think that, yeah, that it's interesting trying to think of Marta as like a Jane Austen heroine. You know, they both live at the bottom of society's ladder, poorer than the people around them. They are women in a world of men. They are people who cling to virtues in a time that is 
the virtues are not the other people are not holding on to the virtues as much as they are and they are people who you're right just have a tiny amount of agency but flex it but are unyielding when they need to be and as is marta and we it's so you're right it's so easy to care about marta right away because she is the only person of color this we see this world naturally through her eyes before we know she's our hero at first we're like oh marta's not gonna be there this movie daniel craig's gonna be the hero of this movie but gee i kind of sympathize most with the maid because she is because I hate these rich people and she's not rich. <laughs> she's the only person mm -hmm. of color. She's the only poor person. And she, I kind of like her. And then the story ends up sort of landing in her lap once again, like we're sort of talking about. And she ends up getting thrust into the role of being the hero of the story when it turns out that the estate has been left to her. That yeah. Now they're all poor and she's rich. And, and, that, and then she has to sort of rise to that occasion. And we're like, oh, good. I already liked her. The, the big thing that she does, too, is something that's utterly... Uh, involuntary, which is vomiting whenever she's called upon to lie. You, you know, so yeah. even like the, 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 her superpower is something that she does involuntarily. But just to go back a couple seconds, um, when you said, oh, Jane Austen's characters like Marta are people who are um, on the bottom of society. I, they're, they're not, on, in either case, are, are they at the absolute bottom? And I know that you're just kind of that's speaking true. roughly. There are some yeah, that's right. They have servants. You always forget. Austin doesn't spend any time on their servants, right. but we talk about you the forget that they have the servants. Yeah. yeah, but they, but it's it's not only that they're not on the very bottom. They have some status, but that status is precarious. And I think yes. that's the that I mean, because if you say it's very bottom, it's like okay, fine, I'll make my character homeless. That's not as interesting, unfortunately, as somebody who has precarious status. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to point out too with with a vomiting thing with Marta, it's really interesting that that's the way you see how virtuous she is because she can't even lie. Like she's so virtuous, she if she lies, she feels so bad, she throws up. And it's it just reminds me so much of these Jane Austen characters who are always like, I would never say that, that's improper, and I would never do that, that's not right. And with Marta, it's this really visceral, over the top thing. I could never even lie; it would make me vomit. Yeah, I think it's, it's the only way that they're able to get away from it from a storytelling point of view. Is because like like when we when somebody says I can't do something, you say yeah right, you, you know. And so only if you pay some price do we believe it, you know. Like like I've had people in my life who say I never lie, and of course as soon as somebody says that, you say yeah I don't I don't believe you. But if, if there's an absolute price that they pay every time that they lie, then you believe them. And of course, and it's kind of a post Farrelly brothers whatever world. Like this is a a good way to kind of. Uh, to exhibit it that okay well they have to they have to they have to do something totally gross if they lie it's like a it's like a, a they're constantly playing a game of truth or dare and it's yeah. funny it's really funny just to yeah, see yeah. people vomiting I don't know. especially <laughs> when she vomits on somebody at the end it just like he gets his comeuppance yeah especially a virtuous person vomiting a person who in every way is demure it's not like somebody who's like a aha life of the party look at me i'm gonna vom vom again it's, it's like you know it's, it's a reasonable person who is not into the fact that they do it Yes. Yeah. This is this is not some you know Jungian anal expulsive character who is flinging uh, himself out into the world. This is a uh, someone who yes is just can't can't hold it within her. Um. So yeah. So okay. So we're we're kind of like a looking at a different or, or like we're we're kind of complicating or enriching this idea <laughs> of agency, right? Um, yeah. To be like to include resistance. I think this is a good point. Yeah, it maybe veers off our topic a little bit, but I just the point is that agency can look like different things in different types of stories and still be that's still the reason you're rooting for the character is still their type of agency. So when you sent us notes about this episode, you're like, well, you think, well, maybe audiences naturally believe in and care about investing in a main character with agency. And then you're like, well, but no, maybe it's like some acts of agency are difficult to relate to difficult to sympathize yeah. with or not interesting. And you're like, and you wrote, I'm not sure which answer I believe. Have you come down on one side or the other? Or are you still in the no. horns of that dilemma? <laughs> I, I was thinking about the fact that I don't enjoy superhero movies. And Neither when I watch I. superhero movies, it's just like pure agency, right? They're just like fighting and going after things and questing. And, and that's mm -hmm. what people love. They love those displays of strength and skill. And I find it really, really boring. Yeah. And I, um, I, I find it unrelatable and like unbelievable. I'm not saying this to, to criticize as in like, I don't know why people like them. I can totally see why other people like them. But so then I'm asking myself, if I'm saying that agency is all I really need, and these characters definitely have agency, then why don't I invest in them? So I, I'm not convinced that all you need is agency. But 
I do think it can go a long way. And I do I, think- also, I, you, love, yeah. you love Harry Potter. How yeah. is Harry Potter different from a superhero story to you? Uh, I Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think it's mostly that superhero movies are all about action scenes and Harry Potter- there aren't a lot of action scenes in in the early books. They're more about mystery and character dynamics, and it's a lot of social exploration. And I'm I just feel really in tune to stories that are about social situations. Whereas when I yeah. see an action scene, it's like something in my brain shuts off and I cannot pay attention. And mm-hmm. and I'll be sitting with my son watching a superhero movie, and he'll be like, "Mom, did you see that?" And I'm like, "Oh man, I cannot keep my mind focused on it." So it's <laughs> something about the way my brain just prefers social stories to action stories. I yeah. do too. Um, and, and I know that you said that you know you know to each their own. But if I mean, I think I want to say to the audience: if you like superhero movies, there's something wrong with you. And you're <laughs> oh yeah. No, I love superhero movies. They're my favorite movies. I, Ugh. I every year for Christmas, people know to just get me the most recent Marvel movie. God knows what anybody's going to get me this year because there were no Marvel movies. This Could year. they get you taste? Yeah, no, it's it's you can't buy that unfortunately. Yeah, what uh, I think superhero movies have gotten really good at is humor, and so when I watch them with my son, I'm I can't pay attention. I'm bored half the time. But anytime there's a conversation, my attention snaps back and they are some of the funniest movies out there. They're just they're really good at playing with character dynamic. That's all Kevin Feige, man. He is he you know, those movies, all, all those Marvel movies have basically the same voice. And it's clearly Kevin Feige's voice, the producer of all these movies. And uh, he has got he has just got an ear for dialogue. He's just, uh, you know, he is, you know, he is not credited with writing any of those movies, but I'm sure he has a lot to do with the voice. So but I mean, you were talking about in your document you sent us about something that I've talked about on the book and on the blog, I don't think I've ever talked about this podcast. And that is the hero having three rules. Mm-hmm. And then, and then somebody asked me at one point, Oh, wait just a second. What's the difference between when, you know, you t- I've talked about in the book and on the blog that how heroes tend to have a false philosophy and then a corrected philosophy. And they were like, well, what's the relationship of the false philosophy and corrected philosophy to the three rules. And so I went through and we'll link to this. I went through every movie that I had done extended checklist for and talked about what the relationship was. And I discovered that sometimes the false philosophy is the same as the three rules they live by. And then they have to break these three rules in order to survive in order to get by. And sometimes the three rules turn out to be the wise guidance they have to rely on in order to break their false philosophy. Uh, Do you guys watch the Mandalorian? Yes. Yes. Because he literally has rules you have to finish the job if you take it. You have to wear your helmet at all times. So it's really easy to see in, in that case, like some very defined personal rules. And then interesting to see how he breaks those very specific rules. I don't know what that reveals necessarily about his philosophy. Um, he breaks he breaks the rule about you have to finish the job yes. because he decides, I love this baby Yoda. I'm going to take care of him. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and break, you know, break my contract. But he then won't break the rule about taking his helmet off. <laughs> and right. even to even in cases where, you know, it's it's has extreme consequences that he won't take his helmet off. And, you know, it's in, and so you get this sort of hierarchy of personal rules where it's like, you know, I think of these three rules as being co-equal in my life, but then eventually push comes to shove. And, and that that's a definite case where it's like, I'm going to break some of these rules, you know, in the interest of humanity. And yet even though there is still a tremendous amount of pressure, I'm going to find that some rules are unbreakable. Some rules I cannot break. Although, I mean, obviously the show is building to the moment when he finally takes the helmet off, but apparently Pedro Pascal couldn't wait that long. I do agree that we're building toward he's going to break the rule and take off his helmet in front of people. But I think the reason why he broke the find the job one or finish the job before he broke the don't take off your helmet rule is because the finish your job one directly affected the philosophy behind why he does what he does because the reason he follows the Mandalorian code is because the Mandalorian rescued him when he was being orphaned. And so now he sees an orphan and wants to rescue it. It's like, it's like this paradox in his code where, Oh, I'm doing these things to be more like the guy who rescued me when I was an orphan. But then if I keep doing these things and I can't rescue an orphan myself, then does that even make any sense anymore? So I think when the helmet thing comes along, it'll have to be something that challenges those that core philosophy that makes yeah. sense i think that like rules are whether they're broken or not they function as potential energy in a story 
Because if you say, okay, or well, here's the one thing I'm never going to do, that you've just given yourself a gift because you can either put them in self, put them in a situation in which they do do it, it becomes all the more meaningful because they do it, or put themselves in a situation that they pay a heavy price for sticking to the rule. And that's another way of paying off that potential energy. With the whole thing like kicking off with him breaking his rule in one sense to kind of uphold another, kind of, I think I've mentioned this in the pod before. Um, like C.S. Lewis at some point like said like every story you know most famously in the Bible like kind of starts with a violation of a rule, um, and I think that's definitely like the case of that. Just like these other characters we're talking about, the main character of Strange Exit has rules for how she's going to navigate the simulation because they're all in this simulation because there's been this nuclear apocalypse and they've escaped onto a ship where they're waiting. They're orbiting Earth until they can get to the surface again when it's safe, when nuclear winter has passed. So the simulation is getting them ready to live on Earth's surface again, or it's supposed to. But then we find that it's not doing that at all. It's just helping them get trapped in, I miss this thing from Earth, and I feel bad that I survived and no one else did. A simulation has very rigid rules. And so Mm. you're going to have to figure out how to interact with them and then how to beat them. But then she has to break those rules because she has some philosophies that conflict with each other. So for me, that was more interesting is, is the, sto- the, the beginning of the story is a lot of her teaching her rules to a sort of apprentice character. And then he's noticing that she's just breaking the rules as the story goes on. Yeah. So that for me was like an interesting way to look at agency and, and the whole, I have these rules, but I have to break them in order to pursue one of the philosophies that are in conflict with, with my other philosophies. And how does that apply to like the apprentice character who in a way, I mean, he's a, he's a co-protagonist. Like yeah. you name the chapters, either his name or her name, uh, depending on who. Well, and as from. she sort of, as she sort of loses herself, we start to, it seemed like we were getting more of his chapters once she sort of lost herself. Like she, you know, this, you know, there's some stories where it's all about how, oh, I've got these rules that are holding me back. Mandalorian story wouldn't have been very interested if he'd just been following his rules the whole time. It becomes interesting when he breaks his rule about you have to complete the job. And that was in the first episode. And he's said, no, I'm, I'm going to stick up for Baby Yoda. And he has ever since. But then you have some stories where the hero breaks their rules and loses themselves. And she sort of loses herself when she breaks her rules. She sort of loses herself, loses her quest. And then Taryn, her sort of apprentice, has to sort of step up. And he seems like he sort of became a hero for a while. And then it sort of shifts again. Yeah, he tries to find his own... Since her ways don't seem to be working, he starts to find his own ways to manipulate the simulation to try to get people out of it. But I mean, their their paths are both diverging because they both realize that neither way is working and no one's getting out of the simulation fast enough. But they both kind of figure out, well, I'm still doing things the wrong way. But I mean, the, the way they go wrong is, is very different. So it's just like they're very polarized in that he's figuring I might as well just rip people out of the simulation at risk of injury or loss of life. And she's, okay, I'm, I better do something really outrageous to get people out. But I'd rather us all die in here together than then do things his way. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they both have different types of agency where they're they're going against their own philosophies, but his agency is more like, I'm going to get this done, and hers is, I don't know if this can be done. Who are you more like? Um, You know what's really fun is when I do school visits, I actually have the students play this game where they, I, I first I tell them about the trolley problem, you know, if you, uh-huh. <laughs> should they've you, seen, uh, they've all seen yeah. the good place. Good, the good place. Yeah. And I always mention that too. I'm like, have you guys seen the good place? Um, <laughs> and then I have them try to choose which, which one they think is the solution for the trolley problem they would like. And based on that, I explain whether they're more like Taryn or Lake yeah. and Taryn's the one who funny. would, would sacrifice people. And, and Lake is the one who's like, I can't even pull the switch. So I'm definitely more like her, which I feel like there's a little bit of bias in her toward her in the book that where his solution ends up being sort of seen in a more negative light and hers Mm -hmm. is more positive, even though my friends, they're like, well, she just drives me crazy because she's not, it's not going to work if she's just like, well, I hope it all works out, but I'm not going to do extreme (laughs) things to save people. And I'm like, well, that's the conundrum a lot of us find ourselves in with moral issues. What are the, so what would you say the rules the specific rules of your simulation are. I think that the main rule of the simulation is that you can control the simulation if it's the part that you yourself have built because Uh it's dynamic in the way that you can make it grow. You can create a new area, a new pocket of a simulation. And if you've created that pocket, then you can, you know, make it bigger or larger, change the appearance or whatever. 
So then our main character, Lake, is trying to go into these pockets to rescue people from them and try to convince them that they're in a simulation, they need to get back to reality. But she has no control over the simulation when she's in those pockets and they have all the control. So it's really hard because then how does she have agency when other people can control the world she lives in? Uh-huh. Um, so she has to have these rules for herself not to get tricked and, and trapped in a simulation. And then, and then, yeah. But then she breaks her rules right mm-hmm. away. I mean, it's it goes back to a previous episode of the podcast where she claims she is acting selflessly and that like, oh, I am just, you know, some of the people on the ship aren't taking very seriously this crisis we have on the ship, but I'm going to go back into the sim as often as possible to rescue people from the sim in hopes to rescuing someone who can fix the ship or get us back to Earth. And I'm going to do that because I am a selfless hero. And then this person that she rescues, and then he's like, oh, well, I'll join you. I'll do the selfless heroic thing with you and rescuing people. She's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go in the sim very often because you're going to get stuck there. You're going to get seduced back into it. And he's like, no, 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 I'll help you. I'll do this thing. And then he's like, oh, you're really just going into the sim to be with your sister because your sister is still alive in the sim and she's not still alive in real life. And you are not pursuing this goal selflessly at all. You are pursuing this goal, so this goal selfishly. Yes, you are trying to do the right thing. Yes, you are trying to save people when you are in the sim. But the primary reason you're there is to hang out with your sister, is to do the thing that you're telling everybody not to do. You're pulling everybody out of the sim, telling them you shouldn't be in the sim, you shouldn't be living in the sim, you shouldn't be doing this uh, enhanced artificial reality. And But she is pretending that she's going in there to save people, but really because she likes being there and she likes the fact that her sister is alive there and they get to hang out. And this goes back to our episode on how selfish or how self-motivated should the hero be and to what degree do heroes who claim to be selfless or motivated for the pure heroism of it, are they lying? Are they kidding themselves or are they lying to other people intentionally and they know that that's not their real goal? It doesn't seem like there could be a hero who's just, I'm just doing this altruistically just because, and unless maybe you're a superhero, which again, I just, I find them a little bit unrelatable. <laughs> but, but she does claim that. Like she, that is mm-hmm. her public self. Her public self is that I am a hero who is going into the same software as possible just to rescue people. Yeah. And then she's hoping they don't notice that actually she's, you know, just really getting in. You know, she just loves hanging out with her sister. The very thing she's telling them they shouldn't be doing. Right. Yeah. And originally it was, I had an early draft set up where she knows her sister is on the ship. And the thing is you can't get to people when they're in uh, stasis. So they they can be in this simulation for a long time because they're in stasis in real life on the ship. And, and she can't get to her sister on the ship. So she's trying to rescue her sister in the simulation. And my editor was like, well, that's like a very nice, noble, easily motivated goal but it's not terribly interesting and so we changed it to where she's really distraught because she's left her sister behind she's on the ship and she knows she can't save her sister but if she can be in the sim with a simulated version of her sister while she's saving other people then it's a much more interesting motivation because she has this this conflict of i want to save people and get them out of the simulation but the more i do that the closer it gets to the day when I can't go to a simulation anymore and see my simulated sister. So it made it made for a more more of a conflict. I think that her. was a good note. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, and there's a very clever thing. You're using objects throughout the book in lots of clever ways. And I love that they're like, okay, well, you've got to, you're going to go into the simulated world and you're going to forget whether or not you're in the simulated world or in the real world. So rearrange the stars on your tattoo. And he's like, oh, I would never rearrange stars on my tattoo. I got that tattoo with my brother. And he's like, well, that's what's perfect about it. Like if this is an object that means a lot to you and then you change it. And then every time you're going to go like, okay, I'm back in the real world. Wait a second. Why are the stars wrong on my arm? And that that is going to remind you that you were in an unreal world. And that is a great physicalization of emotion. And that that is something where, like, and that's something where I think we've all, (laughs) it's funny, this morning, we were going to leave the house. And I was like, oh, let me get my mask on. I'm like, oh, I, you know, the government finally started distributing masks and they dropped off that mask yesterday. And so I've got the mask that the government dropped off in my house. And then I'm like, no, that must have been a dream. It was just a very believable dream where that happened because it just makes fucking sense. <laughs> I thought I thought this morning that I had that mask and I went to go put it on. 
I was like, <laughs> you're saying this is very about. different from California. We don't have yeah. it at all. I got to move to Evanston. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We're kicking it. <laughs> but uh, but I I needed to have some sort of rearranging the stars in my tattoo in order to, uh, in order to know when I was dreaming and when I was in reality, because clearly I was getting confused. Yeah, and the the objects that they're using to keep them grounded are tied to something that's really personal to them. So you yeah. said with Taryn and his his brother, they had gotten these tattoos together, and his brother, his simulated version of his brother, keeps telling him, "You you know you're a, you're really messing up. You gotta get people off the ship. You got if I were here, I would do it better. Like why did you survive and not me?" And so there's this like constant haranguing of of Taryn's inner inner feelings coming out in the simulated brother where he has a survivor's guilt. So that is a lot of like, well, what is he going to do? Is he going to stick with this early philosophy of I, I need to get people out and I can do this? Or is he going to fall into, I can't really do this the only way I can, I'm not really good enough. I just have to start forcing people out. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a way to, to also show what their, what their main philosophy is. And with, with, like it's the bracelet that her sister made for her so it, it's reminding her that she likes to be in the simulation i guess to see her sister but also that she if her sister isn't in, in the real world then if she's wearing that bracelet then that must not be the real world gotcha mm-hmm. your book definitely gets some effort seal of approval in terms of objects i know i remember I, I mentioned on the last podcast that this is uh this is the book where i i thought a lot about exchanging of objects because every time lake goes into a pocket of the simulation and tries to help someone get out she she her method is to use an object she looks around for an object that seems to be manifesting the person's um inner feelings of why they're stuck in the simulation and then she uses that object she gives it to them or talks to them about it in order to convince them to get out so mm-hmm. yeah totally that, that and and i think that's that's the so do, were you you were explicitly thinking about matt's object yeah. advice or were you just like oh you stumbled you, you thought it yourself you're like oh this fits in with matt's advice no i was really thinking about it because it's very it's very hard to <laughs> to have someone be like hey i'm stuck in a simulation and this is my world and have the other person be like i wonder why you're here let's let me think like if you're not a psychiatrist you don't really have that chance to it's like you meet this person in a simulation and you're trying to figure out what they're feeling and thinking as fast as possible and it's mm-hmm. much easier to do that through an object than through yeah trying to psychoanalyze them um and this is like in a way it goes back to i hate to say this that it, because people fall asleep as soon as you say this goes all the way back to aristotle uh, <laughs> because like, doesn't he say that like it, the, there's a moment of recognition in a story and that's usually when somebody brings out like a signet ring or something like that but he talks about it in terms of, and people can correct me if i'm wrong but the way i remember the poetics is like somebody brings out an object that proves like oh that you know this is the case and there's, yeah, there's something irrefutable about an object. And I, do we want to talk anymore about whether or not a character has to, the difference between changing philosophy and changing rules? Oh, yeah. Uh, that was what you were talking about in your in your thing. This was what my thing was about. So let's look. So since we're talking about, since we're slagging on superhero movies, since you guys are slagging on superhero movies and I'm not, let's talk about Iron Man. Because this is a movie in which he has a clearly stated false philosophy, which then, and he clearly stated corrected philosophy, but he doesn't break his rules. He breaks, he completely reverses 180 degrees his philosophy, but he does not reverse his rules. Well, you know, I say that. His false philosophy, he says, my old man had a philosophy. So there you go. So right here, he says, my old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. And then he has a corrected philosophy later in the movie. He says, I'm going to find my weapons and destroy them. I'm not crazy, Pepper. I just finally know what I have to do. I know in my heart that it's right. So that could not be a clear case of false philosophy, correct philosophy. But then this is why people don't like super movies, because they're like, yeah, but then he just builds a better weapon. (laughs) You know, he then decides to track down all the weapons he sold and destroy all the weapons he sold, except for the one big weapon he just built, which he's going to keep just for himself, which is still still a relatively fascistic thing to do. But at no point in this movie does, he does not state his three rules, but I said that his three rules are live well, be smarter and be cool. And that those are his three rules. And this is very much someone who, still believes in living well at the end of the movie, still believes in being smarter, still believes in being cool, someone who is not shaken to their core. I mean, you can have these movies like Dances with Wolves, where the person really does a complete 180, both as a 
both in terms of their philosophy and in terms of their personality and in terms of the way they live their life and in terms of everything. They do a complete turnaround. Well, it was interesting too with Doctor Strange, which they very much sort of turned into a remake of Iron Man, where in the comics, he got a different philosophy when he found enlightenment, which you would sort of expect. (laughs) You know, he goes to the East, he finds enlightenment, and he comes home and he's a very spiritual centered Zen person who is super nice. We talked about this with the Terring movie. Can you be a genius and still be nice? And the Turing movie falsely turned Turing into an asshole because they felt like he had to be an asshole in order to be brilliant. And you get this in Doctor Strange too, where Doctor Strange, partially in, inspired by Iron Man, felt like, oh no, Strange is going to remain an asshole. And he remains an asshole through the Avengers movies. He's still an asshole today in Marvel continuity and the Marvel Cinematic Universe continuity in the comics. He couldn't be a nicer guy. He couldn't be a more philosophical guy. He couldn't be a more spiritually enlightened guy. But I think that this gets to this idea of believability. This gets to this idea of we will buy that their philosophy changes. We will buy that their morals change, but we won't buy if their personality changes. And in the comics, Doctor Strange's personality changed when he found enlightenment. In the movies, it doesn't. And Iron Man's personality definitely never changes when he sort of finds enlightenment, when he goes from being a fundamental force of evil in the world to a fundamental force of good in the world. And is that a good rule of storytelling or is it a bad rule of storytelling? Is that something that's good about the Marvel movies or weak about the Marvel movies? I think it would be silly if Tony Stark changed his personality. It just wouldn't be believable. And so even though it's it's funny that he is saying, I'm going to destroy all these weapons, but still has weapons himself. It's actually, at least it's it's sort of like moving closer toward a more moral philosophy because he's at least using those weapons for good, supposedly. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I agree with James. It's it's kind of funny because it's it's a very American philosophy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean, if he if his personality totally changed, it would be like when Steve Dallas became sensitive in Bloom County. <laughs> it's just like a joke. Uh, um. But one movie that I thought was similar to what you're saying about Iron Man with this idea that you can change but not change at the same time mm. the philosophy or the personality is Rushmore, which you had talked about recently on uh, your yeah. blog. It's funny because in the beginning, the main character is doing all these activities and he's writing these plays and he's putting on this performance to impress everybody. And it, and he thinks that being part of the Rushmore school makes him really impressive. But he's doing all the wrong things to stay in Rushmore because <laughs> yeah. he only cares about being impressive. So he loses that. And you see him figure out, he, he gets humbled a little bit and you see him realize that he can be a little more vulnerable and realistic. But at the end, he still makes this huge over-the-top play just at his new school. <laughs> so it's not like he's completely changed. And you but don't want it's, him to change, you know? I want him yeah, to keep yeah. making these plays. Yeah, and but, so he it, he still has all the good points. He just isn't really trying. He's still trying to impress people with his play, but he's also being real. But now he is admitting who his father is, and he is mm-hmm. doing, you know, he's telling the <laughs> truth about all these things. Yeah, he I'll always he be the son of a barber. I'll always be the son of a barber. He finds a way to change. He becomes a nicer person, much more than Tony Stark ever does. And he becomes a more honest person, but he becomes just as much of a, I don't know, as much of a dreamer, but just as much of a doer, just as much, you know, I mean, he originally got into Rushmore. It's like, you know, Max, do you remember how you got into Rushmore? It's like, yes, I I wrote a little one act about Watergate. And then, and then, and, you know, and then it ends with him doing this big Vietnam epic. And there is more of a sense, he did a Serpico play when he was at Rushmore, which there's a real sense of like, okay, how could this kid know anything about writing an authentic play about Serpico? And then he's writing about Vietnam, but it's like, okay, how could he know anything authentic about that? But at least he now has a friend who was in Vietnam, who was in the ship, as they say. <laughs> yeah, the best and... part of the movie when Bill Murray's like, yeah, I was in the ship. That <laughs> was one of my favorite lines. I would say about Rushmore that it's interesting that he doesn't he doesn't really have a clear cut set of rules, but you can tell that his life is all about Rushmore and then he gets kicked out. And and that's what makes it interesting because it's part of his identity. But I don't know if that's the same as rules or philosophy. You know, I, but it's still well, I feel that he's the kind of guy who would like to be known as the kind of guy who lives by a certain code. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, yeah. Yeah, he's the kind of person like if he had an opportunity to say, I live by three rules, you know, do this, do this and do that. And then he kind of like, feel dramatic while the wind goes through his hair he would love being that guy well, 
I mean, when I wrote down what the philosophy was in that movie, so his friend asked him, what are you going to do? And he says, the only thing I can do, try to pull some strings with the administration. You know, <laughs> yeah, when, <laughs> when, so that's sort of his practical philosophy. But then, of course, he has a grander philosophy, which is he falls in love with the teacher when he sees that she has written in the book a quote from Jacques Cousteau, when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. And he sees that as like, oh, that's my philosophy. And that's Jacques Cousteau's philosophy. And that's obviously this woman's philosophy. We checked out this book and I'm going to figure out who she is and I'm going to fall in love with her. So clearly, if you define his false philosophy as the only thing I can do, try to pull some strings with the administration, that is totally disproven. That was his way of living life. And he has found an entirely better way to live life at the end. But if you define his philosophy as when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to live an extraordinary life, he has no reason to keep it to himself, that is not disproven. That is something where he is like, I still believe myself to be extraordinary. I still believe I have the the opportunity, even at public school, to lead an extraordinary life. And I still feel like I have no right to keep it to myself. I'm going to shout it to the hills. And it depends on what you define as philosophy. Like he, one level of philosophy has been completely upended, but another level of philosophy is not changed at all. I think what changes is his belief that it's Rushmore that makes him extraordinary, where at the end he realizes he is extraordinary without Rushmore. He's just extraordinary in himself. Yeah. All right, guys. So I think we've we've had some good discussion here. We've been all over the map. I'm not sure we've we've come down to a to a one strong overall thesis, but I think we've we've had some good discussion. What um I think any, any less I, I think it's like it's important to have like rules that like a character abides by. And they, and then like it, that's potential energy, and whether they break the rule or not break the rule, that means something, and it, and it speaks to their agency. And I think one of the other things that got brought up that's that news you can use is resistance being a kind of agency, like in uh, Jane Austen novels or in Knives Out. And I think one thing we're sort of coming up upon here is it's good to break one rule and not another. It's good to come up and find that you have to break one rule, and that gives you that is invest that is oh this is a major turning point this character has gotten to a major turning point they are changing one of their fundamental rules about themselves but they're not changing them all Mm -hmm. but so you get the mandalorian he breaks what he sort of thinks of as the major rule he lives his life by and then he goes off his life in a radical new direction and yet he finds that he's still unwilling even in even in order to fulfill some of his obligations in this new world to ever take his helmet off that there are still some rules that are so important to him in rushmore he breaks a rule that maybe he thinks of as his biggest rule but then he finds that there are other rules he is not willing to break that he is not willing to change in iron man the greatest movie of all time he changes oh. some things about himself but he does not change other things about himself and well let's bring it back to strange exit how would you say that works with strange exit parker I don't know. I'd have to list out all the rules and figure out which one. She breaks a lot of them. So, yeah. I think I don't it's know. kind of, maybe it's kind of like to, when you see what rule, like you, at first you see, okay, this character follows a bunch of rules. And then when you see when the going gets tough, what rule they prioritize over another, that tells you something about them. Um, That's yeah. true. Because she doesn't actually, she doesn't ever break the rule of forcing people out of the simulation because yeah. she knows that could kill them. So even when time is running out and Taryn's saying, well, we're all going to be trapped here and die unless, unless we get people out. And so if we have to kill some to save the others, that seems reasonable. And she's like, I just can't break that rule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she breaks her rule about only going into the sim for altruistic reasons because she's really going in there to hang out with her sister. So she's sort of a hypocrite. She's sort of living this hypocritical life. But in the end, once the person who points out that she's a hypocrite, he's like, okay, so now the rules are out the window. Your rules are out the window. Your rules aren't real. Your rules aren't true. So let's start doing it my way. She has to rediscover her, go like, no, in some ways I was a hypocrite. In some ways I was breaking my own rules. But I do have rules that I abide by and you are breaking them and you shouldn't break them and we are going to do it my way. And I mean, it's interesting. Eventually, she uh, the other rule of hers that she breaks is don't go into any version of this ship in the simulation because then you really will lose yourself. And that is the biggest rule of hers that she has to break. And that's what eventually ends up saving the day. That is sort of the where she that becomes the to talk about it in Campbellian terms, the cave where she gets the special weapon is when she goes into the simulation of the ship and has to find the pilot in the simulation of the ship. 
that sort of is the cave where she gets a special weapon. So once again, she is breaking certain rules, but not breaking what turns out to be her most fundamental rule, which is we can't force people out of the same. Yeah. So I think this is, uh, I think this is kind of maybe, uh, I don't know if Parker, if you agree with this or not, but one of the things that I'm taking from this is that somebody just like, am I, or am I not going to stick to my one rule? That's not dramatically interesting. What is dramatically interesting is which one of the several rules I hold, I abide by, or I hold, you know, to be important, which one of them, when the going gets tough, am I going to enact and which one am I going to leave behind? And that is, I think, dramatically interesting. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, and this goes back, I mean, it's kind of like drama is often about people are in a double bind, right? Like, I don't know, Antigone, um, like, uh, on one hand, like she has to, she wants to bury her brothers. On the other hand, she's got to obey the king, right? And so you're in a double bind. You can't do the right thing because you have two. Uh, good versus good dilemma, as yeah, I call good it. Versus good. So it, good versus evil isn't interesting. Uh, a rule versus no rule isn't interesting. A rule versus another rule, and both rules seem pretty reasonable. That's interesting. And so when you have the philosophy of Terran, which you know at least at first seems to be hey, let's just wake them all up and just get out of here, regardless of whether they die or not. And her philosophy is like, no, we need everybody. Uh, and that's you know, not right to just kill people willy-nilly to just finish quickly. Those are two philosophies that are both defensible, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's what makes it dramatically interesting. Um, so yeah, like showing people preferring one rule over another, especially when the rubber meets the road, that's drama. That's interesting. Okay. Guys, all right, I think this is good. I think they, they, I often do this on the show. I'll go like, well, guys, we didn't really come up with any <laughs> with any good philosophy, but that's fine. And then that I'm really stabbing James in the gut as I say that. And then I uh, it causes a breakthrough where then we come up with, uh, with a concluding thesis that was better than the one we had before. Okay, guys, I think that now we do have a concluding thesis. Parker, do you have any last thoughts or things you want to say or do? Nope, that was great. That was a lot of fun. Okay, James, do you have any any concluding words? No. No. Okay, well, God knows America is at a crisis. America is at a crossroads. We are all waiting on tenterhooks for our vaccine. We are all doing what we can. I am going to edit this episode. I'm going to get it out to you so that it helps you get through this, this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad time. And we will do it. And we will try to do another episode soon. All right, guys, thanks so much for coming out. Thanks for having me again. That, this has been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I, it's great to have you on. You 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 make some really good points. That'd be very Thank helpful. Thank you. Thanks. And and stuff to talk about. Please go out and buy Parker's books. Please go out and buy James's book uh, and his upcoming books, which you can't talk about. Please go out and buy my book and my upcoming book, which dear God, I've got to start writing. And we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Yay, Bye. we did it. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.